You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through verse 41 will be our text today. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're right smack dab in the middle. And so here we go. I'm going to go ahead and read it. It'll be up on the screen. There's also Bibles under the chairs around if you want to uh, use one of those. That would be great. Um, And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take that as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. So please hear the Word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 41. I'll read it. Just read all of it. And then I'll pray and we'll jump in and dig through uh, through these great texts. Mark 9, 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it often casts him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when the spirit saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and they did not want anyone to know. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued about which one, uh, argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who, but he whom, who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but he was not, because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For one... For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no no means lose his reward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this eyewitness account of Jesus. 
pray that, uh, that we would learn what we need to learn from this passage, that we would apply it to our hearts and, um, and, and live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I was working on this sermon while Bianca was coloring, and she came up with this beautiful uh, painting right here. It's called The Transfiguration. Yeah, good job, Bianca. So, now this is actually by Raphael in 1520. He painted this picture, which is just a, a portrait of last week's text, The Transfiguration, and this week's text. And you have this uh, beautiful juxtaposition here, uh, really stunning, of Jesus in all of his glory. you got Moses and Elijah who are right there, and the three disciples who were up on the mountain with him, and they're bowed down and they're worshiping. There's just such tranquility and glory and peace up where Jesus is in his glorified state, and then you get to the bottom of the mountain, and it's just utter chaos. You have the boy there, who's the one with the shirt off there, his eyes are going different directions, you can't really see it, he's demon-possessed, and the disciples are fighting with the scribes, they're arguing, and there's just total chaos while Jesus is away. And, uh, and these men are trying to do ministry in their own strength, they're unable to do it, this demon is totally dominating this boy, and the father is, uh, is just racked with doubt and fear. And you just have this juxtaposition of those who are with Christ and His glory and the peace and the tranquility versus uh, just how chaotic it is when Jesus isn't at the center of what's going on. Uh, and in our context here, the first part of the book, we have the question driving us of who is this man who can heal people, who can drive out demons, who can calm storms. Who is this man? That's the first eight chapters is really driving at who is Jesus. We, these, uh, these examples of His divine authority until we finally get to a two-stage healing in chapter 8, and we get this new section about spiritual sight, and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then when Jesus says that, okay, now you're getting me, yes, you're right, I am the Old Testament Christ from the Old Testament, uh, promised in the Old Testament, I must die and I must rise again, that's my mission. Peter rebukes him, and then that leads into the second half of the book of not just who Jesus is, but what did he come to do, what must he do, what's his mission and his mission is to die and rise again. And that's a hard thing for the disciples to get their heads around. They did not expect Israel's Messiah to be one who would die. They expected him to come and conquer Rome and set up the political glory of Israel once again. And that's not what Jesus has come to do. And so now we're in the second half of the book as we're driving hard towards Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem. Uh, the title of our message is, I Believe, Help My Unbelief, which is the cry of the man in this story and uh, really is at the heart of our section of Scripture here today. What does it look like to follow Jesus on the cro- in cross-bearing discipleship? So we're going to look at three things today. First, in verses 14 through 29, we're going to look at a miracle that in- illustrates effective faith. This miracle is an illustration. We only have a couple of miracles in the second half of the book. We have a healing of a blind man in chapter 10. And we have this miracle right here. The first half of the book is packed full of miracles by Jesus. The second half has only a couple, and they're there to illustrate something. And so the illustration here of this miracle is what does effective faith look like? A miracle illustrating effective faith. Then we're going to look in verses 30 through 32 where Jesus makes a declaration about his destiny, which is death and resurrection. And then in verses 33 through 41, a lesson about true greatness. What does it look like to truly be great in the kingdom? So let's just walk right through this. Let's first look at verses 14 through 29, a miracle illustrating effective faith. And point number one is this, effective faith keeps Jesus at the center. Effective faith keeps Jesus at the center. Let's look at verses 14 through, 40, uh, 14 through 19 again. When they, when they came to the disciples, Jesus is coming down from the mountain, okay? He's, he's been doing the transfiguration thing. The three disciples are up there. The other nine are down on the ground doing whatever they do. They're trying to do this miracle, 
and it doesn't work out. And they came, and when, the, when, the, and when they came, meaning Jesus and the three, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So there's conflict. The scribes are opposing Jesus and Jesus' disciples. There's a crowd, there's a big commotion, and there's this, this fight, this arguing between these people. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, meaning Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Why were they amazed? Perhaps he still had residual effects of being glorified. You remember his clothes were glowing up on the mountain. Perhaps they're still glowing to some extent. Kind of like Moses in Exodus 34, whose face shone and the people couldn't even look at him. They had to put a veil on his face because his, he had been in the presence of God and his face actually literally glowed and was hard to look at. Perhaps they're amazing at Jesus here because he still, he still has some shininess to him. He's still shining forth the glory of Christ, perhaps. Verse 16, they asked him, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? What is this conflict about? So then the man comes from the crowd. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So he had heard about Jesus and was like, Jesus can do something about demons and diseases. And so here they come. And, uh, and he's like, I brought them. I couldn't find you, so I brought them to your disciples. Your disciples in the past have had authority to cast out demons, right? We've seen that before where Jesus gave authority to them to cast out demons, but they're unable to do it. Someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought to you my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked the disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. That's a key word here. They are not able. Jesus, if you are able, and Jesus will prove to be able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Kevin DeYoung says this, the disciples, in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus leaves for just a little bit, and already things are total chaos. Kevin DeYoung says the disciples are thinking about what the disciples can do. That's what's on their mind. The dad is thinking about what his son needs. That's what's on his mind. The crowds are thinking about the next show that Jesus might put on. And the scribes are thinking about how right they are, how, all, how they're always right. And no one is really thinking about Jesus or the power of God here. This desperate man needs help for his boy, and the disciples are confident in their own abilities, but utterly powerless, utterly powerless to do what needs to be done. Jesus expresses his exasperation. Who's he exasperated with? Is it the disciples? Is it the crowd? Is it the man? Maybe it's all of them, but particularly I think it's his disciples. Disciples, you should know better by now that the power comes from me, not from you. They had lost sight of Jesus. They're trying to do things in their own strength. And I think there's something for us to learn here. Exercises of religion are worthless and destructive if they don't have Jesus at the center. So these attempts to do good things in their own strength without Jesus at the center, without appealing to the power of God, it just becomes destructive. Religion without Jesus is just destructive and worthless and powerless. In fact, it's marked by arguing, it's lacking power, and it undermines faith. That's just a reminder for us in whatever ministries that we do or want to do that we must always keep Jesus at the center and we must always be asking God for his help. It's God's power that makes any of this worth doing. Any of our gathering, any of our ministry, any of our good uh, efforts are powerless if Jesus is not at the center. And religion that isn't centered on Jesus, that's marked by arguing, tra uh, lacks power, and under actually undermines faith, actually works against um, the ministry of Jesus. We actually see that in Revelation chapter 2. I brought this up before where Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your good works. I know your good doctrine. But this I have against you. You've left your first love. Jesus is no longer at the center of your church and affection for Jesus. You've got great doctrine. You've got 
great perseverance, but you've missed, you're missing the main thing. Therefore, if you don't repent, I'm going to close you down. That's what we have here is the disciples have good intentions, but they are trying to do things in their own strength. They're trying to do ministry in their own strength. They're very, very confident in who they are that they don't really think that they need God's help. And so we get this negative illustration of effective faith must always keep Jesus at the center. Once you pull Jesus out of the equation, it just turns into chaos and arguing about who's right, right? And it lacks power. Just important for us to remember. And in verse 19, he says, bring him to me. Bring your boy to him. That's the essence of Christian ministry is bringing people to Jesus. That's really all that the disciples really needed to do was I need to get this person with with a need that only Jesus can meet and get them to the Jesus who can meet their need. And that's really, that's really what Jesus is calling us to do as a church is find people who need Jesus and bring them to me, right? It's just the essence of ministry. That's our calling. Bring him to me. Jesus is exasperated with them. Their lack of faithfulness, their lack of centrality, their, their self-reliance, their arguing bothers him. It's not full of faith. It's not effective faith. Effective faith keeps Jesus at the center. Secondly, in verses 20 through 27, we see that effective faith can be very weak. It can be very weak. They brought him, and they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and it rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. So this demon is trying to kill this man, or this boy. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The man is like, if you remember the man back in, I think it's the beginning of chapter one, he says, if you will, you can make me, un, you can make me clean. There was no doubt of Jesus's ability. It was just a matter of, will Jesus do it? And that was an act of faith. Here the man is really doubting. If you can, like I came to your disciples, they can't seem to do anything about it. Maybe, maybe you can, but he's doubting and Jesus challenges him on that. If you can, Maybe you could have compassion on us. And Jesus calls him out on that. He says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, which is actually the cry of faith. And when Jesus saw that a crowd running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So this demon seems to manifest itself in almost like an epileptic infirmity. Like he convulses, he's mute, he throws himself into the fire, he loses control of his body, and it means to kill him. And we see this contrast between Satan and his demons, which are always living to kill. Whereas we're seeing in context here that Jesus came and he'll be killed so that we might live just such a difference between the kingdom of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus dies. He gives his life in order to give life. And these demons use their existence to take the life of this boy. The, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes that he may have life. So you just get this, these two kingdoms, this evil kingdom, Satan and his demons, Jesus and his disciples uh, are doing two vastly different things. Verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion. The man's confidence is shaken by the pride of the disciples. He comes in faith to bring them to Jesus. He brings them to the disciples because Jesus isn't there. They can't do anything. And now the man's faith is shaken because of the pride of the disciples. They're like, yes, we can handle this. And now the man has doubts about Jesus because of the conduct of the disciples. 
oh, that can happen so much today. Friends, how many people are put off and write off Jesus because of the pride of Christians? Christians who think they can do things in their own strength. How many people have rejected Jesus because of arrogant self-reliance of, of church people? And I pray that's not the case of our church. The people's experience of redeeming grace church people is that there is a humble dependence on God and his power and not our own. The people would not experience us as sort of prideful, we can get it done in our own strength. And then when it inevitably fails because it lacks spiritual power, the people are then turned off to Jesus. They're doubting Jesus. So the man's confidence is shaken by the pride of Jesus' disciples, the powerless pride of his disciples. But Jesus does challenge the man. He says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. All you need is faith. You need faith in me. Jesus is not saying that faith in itself has power. That's not what he's saying. That is some sort of faith in faith. But faith, faith's object. That faith connects you to the source of power. Like a power cord plugged into an outlet. The cord in itself doesn't have power, but it is the way that we get attached to the power, right? So faith is the way that we attach ourselves to Christ and his power then is applied to our lives. So that's what he's saying is that you need to connect yourself by faith to me. And then anything is possible because the power of Christ comes through you. This is so different from the disciples who thought they had power in and of themselves. And so they don't pray and they try to cast the demon out and they can't do it. Like if you have faith, that faith in me will connect you to a power source to where these good things can happen. Anything can happen if we're connected to Christ by faith. And in verse 24, he cries out. And the word cried out here really has the sense of like a desperate shout. Like he's screaming this. Like he feels so desperate. He feels so convicted. And he cries out in this state when Jesus challenges him on his faith. If you can, if you just had faith, my brother, that would connect you to, my, to the power that I want to accomplish through you. And he cried out this loud, desperate shout, one of the most honest and helpful statements in all the Bible, right? Which is, I believe, help my unbelief. Have any of you been in that position before? Yeah, where it's like, man, this Christianity thing, man, we believe some crazy things, right? I'm not sure I believe, but I want to believe. And that's where the man is. He's been exposed for his lack of faith. And he's like, I do faith. I want faith. I, 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 I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. I know it's insufficient. I know it's small. I know my faith is very, very weak. Would you help me with my faith? Would you give me more faith? It's a brilliant question because it's honest, it's humble, it's weak, but what makes it powerful is it's Jesus-focused. He's going to Jesus. He's not trying to muster up faith on his own. He's like, Lord, will you help me have the faith in you that I need? He has enough faith to go to Jesus and ask for faith, right? What a sweet thing. It's humble, it's honest, it's weak, but it's Jesus-focused and that's what matters. He asks Jesus for help. Jesus is at the center of his attention, unlike the disciples, unlike the scribes, unlike the crowd. He is focused in on Jesus, and he taps into him with just the weakest of faith. You see, it's not the strength or size of faith that saves, but the object. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say two people get onto an airplane, right? One is super confident. They fly all the time, not worried about flying at all. They get in their seat. They put on their earbuds. They watch their movie. They don't think about it at all. Another person, trembling down down the road. They, they've watched too many documentaries like we did last night about plane crashes, right? And they're trembling and they're weak and they're scared and man, as soon as the plane moves, people screech and 
holler. And um, I remember when we would do mission trips to Haiti, Haitians hate flying. They like scream out when flights are happening. Like they just hate flying. They're terrified of flying. I don't know why it is, but it's just like it's jarring. Um, And so screaming, terrified, terrified the whole flight. And then the flight lands and both of them get off the plane. Which of them, which of them got to their destination? The really confident one with a lot of faith, confidence, peace, or the one that was trembling the whole time? Which one reached their destination? They both did. Because it's not how confident you are in the plane. It's not how subjectively strong your faith might seem. It's the object. There was enough faith to at least get on the plane. And trembling, shaking, doubting the whole time gets to the destination just as much as the one with big, confident, fearless faith. It's the object that saves, not how big the faith is. It just takes a mustard seed. And that's what this man has. He's terrified. God may not come through Jesus, but he's like, Jesus, I have, I have a mustard seed. Is that enough? That's enough. That's enough faith for Jesus to respond favorably to this man. In verse 26, the, the boy convulses and then appears dead. And at this point, you've got to be thinking of this poor guy, right? He's expressed faith. His boy goes through this epileptic fit falls down, and appears to be dead. It's like you bring your boy to Jesus. Jesus challenges you on some stuff. You try to respond as best as you can, and now your boy's dead. A lot of good that did. Jesus seemed to make things worse before he made them better. We don't know if he's exactly dead or not, but it was at least long enough for people to sit there and go, I think he's dead. Jesus killed him. It seems like things got worse here for a second. It seems like it was worse. Have you ever experienced that? Where you turn to Jesus in faith, you're trying to do the right thing, and it seems like things get worse, harder? A lot of good, especially when your faith is so weak, right? When you're doubting and you're not sure if Jesus can come through, I'm bringing all the faith that I can, and then it seems like things are worse than they were before. And then it says Jesus takes him by the hand and he raises him up. I don't know if it was actually he was dead or not, but that raising up is the same word that he uses, I think it's in Matthew chapter 12, where he raises a little boy, raises a little boy from death. So this could be a resurrection here, at least appears that way. Jesus literally brings him through death to resurrection to new life. And so we see that effective faith is Jesus-centered, keeps Jesus at the center. Effective faith also may be very weak. This boy, this man's faith was enough. It was enough because it was not how big his faith was. It was the object of his faith that mattered. And his boy is transformed. And then lastly, effective faith, we see illustrated here, lives by prayer. Look at verses 28 through uh, 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, probably back in Capernaum. Um, no, actually, that's coming in the next verses. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, what could, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So remember, he accused them of being a faithless generation. I am so, I'm so worn out by you and your faithfulness, faithlessness, right? I think he's speaking to the disciples there, maybe the whole crowd. It's like, well, why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Like, well, you seem so easy for you. You just knocked that demon right out. Why couldn't we do it? This cannot be driven out by any kind of prayer. Now, this could speak to a special class of demons that maybe are, require particular effort, spiritual practices, maybe. But it seems like the main point of the text here is that your faithlessness expressed itself in prayerlessness. Your faithful, you, were, you, had, you, had, um, you had confidence in yourself and not, did not seek God for his help. The main point is expressed, you did not express your dependence on God and your need for him. 
And that's the only way to effective faith. If you want your faith to have an effect on other people, you need to be a praying person. A person who goes into battle on other people's behalf through prayer. Paul Miller writes this. He says, we don't need self-discipline to pray without ceasing. You want to increase your prayer life. Self-discipline won't get you there. What we need is to be poor in spirit. To be in situations that are so over our head and so aware of our weaknesses that we pray. Right? We need to be poor in spirit. We need to have less of a confidence in ourselves. We will pray more if we feel more desperate, right? And these disciples felt such a confidence in themselves that never even dawned on them to pray. We never even thought about asking God for his help to cast out this demon. We just thought in and of ourselves, we're disciples of Jesus. No, you're a conduit. You're just a, you're a minister. And so you, this kind is only cast out by prayer. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is express dependence on God. It takes humility to pray, to need God's help. And it takes a confidence and faith to do it. So that's what we see in that illustration. Effective faith is focused, has, keeps Jesus at the center. Effective faith can be very weak and still be very effective. And effective, prayer lives, or effective faith lives by prayer. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. We see a declaration about Jesus' destiny. Verse 30, they went there, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and they did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So this is the second of three cycles of Jesus telling them that his mission, his destiny, is death and resurrection. Not a throne yet, but a cross. This is the second of three cycles where Jesus explains his passion that's coming, his death and resurrection. The disciples will respond with pride and unbelief. We're going to see that in a second. And then Jesus has to correct them. It's going to happen three times. It just takes them a long time to see the mission and plan of God here. There's two things I want you to notice about this particular explanation. Jesus says something very interesting. He says that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So it's like Jesus is in the hands of one entity. He's going to be handed off into, willingly, into the hands of someone else, right? That's sort of the picture here. Well, who's the original hands? Who's delivering him over? It's God. It's God the Father who is going to take his precious son incarnate and give him into the hands of men to do whatever they will to him. It is according to the plan of God that Jesus himself will be murdered. It's part of the plan of God. And who will do the murdering? It will be into the hands of men. So this is not just Israel's leaders. We saw back in chapter 9 that uh, he was going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the elders and then will be killed. Now it's into the hands of men. In some sense, all of humanity, all of humanity has the blood of Christ on their hands. He's going to be delivered. God, the divine one, is going to deliver Jesus, the son of man, into the hands of men and they will kill him into the hands of men. We, we get the same picture of both the, the crucifixion of Jesus is both the plan of God and the crime of humanity at the same time. We see this in Acts chapter 2 when Peter, who's probably the one that's behind this particular book, also preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says this, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. That sounds like the first part of Mark. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was part of the eternal plan of God. And killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified and killed by the, by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. This is sort of the mind-blowing beauty of the gospel is that it's the beautiful plan of God to redeem sinners and it's the utterly evil act of sinful humanity that they would take their creator and murder him, right? And both in that moment are exposed, both the beautiful plan of God that he would sacrifice his son in this way, the evil of humanity that they would murder their creator and then that being the plan of God to be flipped over, this evil act flipped over to be the source of salvation for all who would repent and believe. It's just amazing. And it's hard for these disciples to get their head around it, but it's the most beautiful thing in the world. One commentator says this, in all three of the passion predictions, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Such an odd contradiction here that Jesus is going to go lower and lower and lower, more and more humiliation, pain, death, and suffering. And the disciples only have on their mind how great this is going to get for them. They could not be on different paths. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling their lives. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count the assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Jesus on the costly way to Jerusalem. And so here we get the last part here, a lesson about true greatness, verses 33 through 41. Here's part one of the lesson, verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? This is probably Peter's house. They're back in Capernaum now. And they were having a conversation that Jesus happened to be overhearing, and he asked them, he calls them out on it, and look at their response. They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We love, we as human beings, love to think about who might be the greatest, right? Just watched the Super Bowl last week. Patrick Mahomes, he's on his way to being the greatest quarterback that ever lived. No, Tom Brady, no, Peyton Manning. We love that stuff, don't we? We want to know who's the best, right? Who's most qualified to be our president? Who's the best? Who is the best of the best? Who's the greatest? It's just in the heart of man to want greatness. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't condemn the desire to be great, or the desire to make a difference and have significance. We're not Buddhists in that we're trying to kill off all desire. Now, there's something good about desiring to be great, but they have the way to greatness entirely upside down. True greatness is entirely opposite of what the world says. Everything in their culture is a hierarchy of honor in the first century. There's the haves and the have-nots. Like Everything's a hierarchy. Everyone is below somebody. This is extreme in the first century. And when he takes a child, maybe one of Peter's own children, perhaps, because we know Peter has a mother-in-law, so that means he probably has a wife. That's kind of how, I think those things go together. And he's in Peter's house in Capernaum, and he sets a child in the middle of them. If you can just imagine this illustration, maybe, of Jesus putting a child in the middle of them. And you want to know? Do you want to know what true greatness is? Let me take the least significant person in this household, and let's make them an illustration here. And here's the deal. In the first century, children are emblematic of low status. And how you treat them says a lot about you. Now just remember, in the first century, there's no charm or sentimentality about children. They're not cute little like centers of our attention. They don't get the attention that Nora gets every day of her life. There's no Disney Plus to keep them occupied. No one's making shows for kids, right? That's not a market. 
There's no baby bouncers. There's no striders. There's no Chuck E. Cheese. There's no Bluey. There's nothing made for kids. Kids are, children are not particularly valuable. And the reason why is that so many children died. They died so very young. And so you just don't get very attached to children. You just don't. They're expensive to feed in the first century, and so they're often just discarded, abandoned, or exposed. It's not uncommon to see a baby just on a trash heap, discarded by someone, starving to death, or being pulled apart by animals in the ditch, just discarded. Infanticide and abortion run rampant in the first century. Children are the lowest of the low. They don't add anything to the household. They just take. There just isn't a lot of value, and what's amazing is that in all the worldviews of all the Christian history, there's nothing like Judaism and especially Christianity that has such a high regard for children. That's really unique to Christianity. That's part of the reason Christianity spread like crazy is that it was so countercultural, is it would take care of the lowest and the least. And one of the reasons why the Christianity sort of flipped the Roman Empire is they're pulling all of the babies out of the ditches, particularly a lot of girls, because girls were seen as an expense. You're going to have to give a dowry when they get married. So just and so all of a sudden, within a few centuries, the Christians have all the women because they took these babies in and they cared for them. It's, this comes right from Jesus, this love for children. One commentator asks this question. He says, is Jesus referring to welcoming actual children or is this child just a representative of lowly members of society and Christians should honor them? Or is it actually speaking to believers that actually this child illustrates just how lowly you are? It's not in the context, it cannot be so neatly distinguished. It's all three of those things. But it says in verse 37 that receiving one of these is the same as receiving Jesus. And since those who represent Jesus are his followers, the child probably represents a follower of Jesus. This is what you're like. Verse 41 says that Jesus will say that anyone who gives you a cup of cold water will certainly not lose their reward. You're the vulnerable ones. You're the lowly ones. How you treat one another, how you treat children, says a lot about what you believe true greatness is. What the world says is insignificant, you value, and you sacrifice for. And so, if you just think about this, the reality is, is he's like, you're not as great, you 12 disciples, as you think you are. Your kids, your children. In the world's eyes, you are children, you are on the bottom of the totem pole, and if you're willing to embrace that lowly role, I will honor you. And those who honor your lowliness will honor me too, right? I'm tying myself to you and the low position. So I think this should cause us to think, rethink our discipleship. Maybe our discipleship should not primarily be focused on serving someone who, well, maybe it should be focused on serving someone who seemingly has nothing to offer me. Instead of serving someone who has something a lot to offer me. Maybe we don't always or even primarily look for someone who has something to offer me as if they could get me some sort of advancement or upward mobility. Perhaps our discipleship should be focused on who is the one who has little to offer me, that knows less than me, that can do less than me, and maybe serving them is the faster path to growth, right? Maybe, maybe Jesus is onto something here. Maybe we should go to those and say to ourselves, I'm going to pay a price to serve them and be associated with them. It's going to cost me something. But maybe that's where Jesus is most honored. One commentator said Jesus' point is that true servant leadership means welcoming those of his followers who are deemed irrelevant and unworthy of such recognition. 
True servant leadership flips social hierarchy on its head, lifting up and serving those of lower status in the eyes of the world. Welcoming those in who really can't help us make budget. Who really might not ever be able to serve in any sort of effective ministry. But maybe there's something about true greatness of serving those of lower status. Simply because that's where Jesus attaches this. I, th- I think we've had over, over the years as a church, we've had dozens of people come through our doors and then leave. Because we just aren't a church that has much to offer them. There's no great ministry, there's not any cool lights or a big stage. But what we do have is a lot of opportunities for humble service. Right? I'm not trying to compare us to the church or, or badmouth anyone that's coming in or through. But what is it that we want in our church? What kind of disciples will we be? What do we want in our walk with Jesus? It takes humility to receive the gospel. It takes humility and lowliness to be baptized in front of everybody. It takes humility to bind yourself as a member of a church. It takes humility to serve those in ways that nobody sees or compliments. Uh, The way of the cross is going to be a downward direction. It's going to be low. It's going to be humble. A.T. Pearson says this, The ideal missionary must have four passions, a passion for truth, a passion for Christ, a passion for the souls of men, and a passion for self-sacrificing. What more could I give? For someone else. So Jesus challenges them pretty directly using a pretty scandalous illustration here and taking this child and go, you are like this and you need to serve people like this. That's what true greatness is. Not the big stage, not the big crowd, not a lot of praise and accolades, but you serve those who can't do anything for themselves, can't do anything for you. Now, now you're starting to get what true greatness is like. Second part of this lesson, you must be thankful for gospel allies wherever you can find them. Look at verse 38. John said to him, this is the first time John's mentioned. Usually we don't have disciples called out directly like this. And John was one of those that was just on the Mount of Transfiguration a few minutes ago or a few verses ago. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And it's almost like John is expecting a pat on the back. Good job, John. Way to cut off some ministry. Like, hey, he wasn't authorized. He didn't have our stamp of approval. And it's not, it's, it doesn't say that they weren't following Jesus. It says that, that he, we silenced them because they weren't following what? Us. They weren't following us. They weren't checking with us before they went and did this ministry. And this is so ironic because guess what they couldn't do just a few verses ago? Cast out a demon. Yeah, you guys, this is so ironic. Their humbling was short-lived. They've already moved on. Their failure to cast out this demon has just gone right by their heads. Jesus says he's going to die and rise again. You should be people of prayer. Like, just went right by them, and now they're arguing about who's the greatest. Well, we're probably the greatest because we got to go up on the mountain with him. Well, I'm the greatest because I get to carry the money. I'm the greatest because I actually walked on water. You guys didn't. And they're like, well, yeah, for like two minutes, right? They're just having these arguments, and then John's like, I know, I know. This was to impress Jesus. I silenced some people who were casting out demons in your name. Only we should be the authorized ones to do it. We're greater than them. They don't follow us. They're not part of our inner circle. How dare they be doing ministry in Jesus' name? In verse 39, look what Jesus says. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not, for the one who is not against us is for us. He's on your team. 
He loves and respects me and he's offering me to people and God is blessing that ministry. He's on your team. He's not an enemy. For I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You want to know who needs ministry? It's you. You're the one that needs ministry, right? If anyone offers you a cup of water, right? You guys are not that great. And you want to know anyone who does something in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, to draw people to Christ, I will honor that, whether they're part of your tribe or not, right? So there's a rejoicing at truth, even when it doesn't come in your preferred packaging. And this is important, especially, you know, we're pretty convictionally Baptist church here, right? Which means that we have disagreements with other churches out there, but if they're holding out the word of life and they're presenting Jesus accurately, they're our brothers and they're our friends, can we necessarily be in the same church? At some point, we're going to have decisions that we just disagree on, right? So it's not like we all sm smash in together as if convictions don't matter, but there is a, there can be a factiousness where we love taking out people who aren't exactly like us, and Jesus just hates that. I love what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They should not do that, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to affect me in my imprisonment. Some people are preaching the gospel just to sort of like mock me and make a fool of me. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul from jail goes, some people are preaching the gospel to mock me or to make themselves seem better. As long as people are hearing about Jesus, man, that's my biggest thing. Right? That's not to say that motives don't matter, but he's just saying ultimately what saves people is the gospel. And so however the gospel gets out, I'm not going to be, there's so much, there's so much. Like, if there's a famine in the land and a different restaurant opens up that's feeding people, as long as they're giving out true food, why would I be jealous about that? There's so many. There's so many lost people. We don't have time to fight with our brothers and sisters who really do hold out the true gospel, but maybe you're just a little different than us. There's a fine line between discernment and suspicion. A fine line between discernment and suspicion. And there's a need for strong conviction, but a lot of generous charity and believing the best between Christians. And it's severely lacking in a lot of places. Again, strong conviction, because the Bible does speak to things and they matter. We should land somewhere. We should pick a lane. But that doesn't mean that God only uses people in our lane, right? So we have to hold those two things together, and I think Jesus is pointing that, to that here. If you have 100 pianos, how do you get all of those pianos tuned to each other? You tune them all to the same fork, right? If they try to tune to each other, that's chaos. They'll all be out of tune. But if you ring the fork and the, all the pianos are tuned to the same fork, they will naturally be tuned with each other. So every Christian should tune themselves to God, to, to Christ and his word, to the gospel, and they will have an underlying unity that will be greater than anything with one another. Does that make sense? Churches that try to find unity horizontally will inevitably just end up being all out of tune. But if they tune themselves to Christ and his gospel and his word, they will almost automatically be tuned in all the right ways with each other. hope that illustration makes sense. Any church or Christian that is preaching the gospel rightly is my ally and not my enemy. Does that mean we can do church together? Well, that depends. But we always want to speak well and act well towards people we anticipate we're going to be in the same heaven with. 
I don't want to be at odds with anyone I'm going to spend eternity with. That's just awkward, right? So as much as I can have peace and charity, knowing that, hey, God is the Lord of the church, not me. Here's what we see is that there's no VIP seating at the Lord's table. The disciples seem to think that they are sort of the arbiters here in this say, and they're not ready for that. They're going to have to make calls later. There will be truth and error. There will be correction that's needed. It's not to downplay that. But there isn't like, there isn't VIP seating at the Lord's table. You want to be great, you go low. And you want as many people on your team as possible. One preacher put it this way, the criteria for ministry is not style or tradition or denomination, but that Jesus' name is being lifted up and glorified. And that's what Jesus cares about. Whether it's coming from one of his 12 or it's coming from someone else, as long as he's being lifted up and glorified, Jesus seems content with that, and we should be as well. We are to rejoice in this. The proper attitude for those in ministry and all who desire to minister is a spirit that is tolerant and free from jealousy and is supportive of others. Let's pray for revival and be totally fine if it comes in someone else's church. If overall Christianity grows but redeeming grace closes, praise God doesn't have to be exactly our brand now we have convictions we're doing things a certain way with intentionality we hope the lord blesses it and god is more than free to use someone other than us to do great ministry and we should rejoice because it's not about us bottom line if i was to wrap up this whole message in one sentence here's the bottom line as a gathering of disciples of redeeming grace church we must guard ourselves well in terms of being faith-filled prayer in terms of having faith-filled prayer Humble service that's willing to serve the least of these. Thinking of our disciples of how can I go lower? And generous partnership. Generous partnership. To go that there are so many more, like we could stand out in front of the Journey Museum and just what we see, just the apartment, just the different things that we see is enough ministry for five churches. There's more than enough ministry for all of us, Right? If all of the seats in Rapid City were full today, there still would be thousands of people in Rapid City that don't know Jesus, right? So a generous partnership. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness. Like the man, I believe, help my unbelief to access the presence of God. And that's the call for us today. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me with my prayerlessness. Help me with my pride. Help me with my unwillingness to serve the least of these. Help me to have a generous partnership with other Christians that is convictional but also very charitable. And if you're feeling a conviction of your sin, you don't know Jesus, turn from your sins and put your trust in him. His death and resurrection, he was delivered over by God into the hands of men so that you would be saved. You can come to Jesus now if you will just cry out the humble cry of this man of going, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe in your death and resurrection for my sins. And yet I still have doubts. Is that enough? And Jesus will say, yes, just bring me what you have and I will take it and I will save you and I will draw you near and I will make you into who I want you to be. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word, uh, this a lot of scripture here and a lot that we can learn about what it looks like to be in cross-shaped discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Lord, I pray that we would learn the lesson that these disciples didn't learn, that we need to do ministry in in your strength. We need to have Jesus at the center. We need to call out to God for help in ministry. We need to be people of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to see that true greatness is not how big our church can get or how much money we have or how many cool ministries we can offer people, but how low are we willing to go in service to the least of these? And Lord, help us to remember that we're the least of these, Um, that this is not some sort of patronizing, we're better than other people, so they need our help, but we are just beggars who found bread. And I pray that we would help others do the same. And Lord, I pray that as we seek to be very convictional and clear on what we're doing as a church, that we would be very slow uh, to cast uh, stones against other Christians who are really trying to do the right things. God, I pray that we would be in good dialogue, um, help us to hold fast to our convictions, but not throw stones at brothers and allies. Lord, help us to know how to do that well in our personal relationships with each other, but also as churches in how we speak of one another. And God, we thank you for this countercultural call to take up our cross and follow you. Help us to do it well in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.